As a pastor myself, speaking to, I'm assuming, a few pastors and many worship leaders and perhaps soloists, instrumentalists, those who are involved in Sunday morning and have been through the gauntlet that has been the last 18 months, I speak to you who may be weary as many pastors and many church leaders and many church staff people are weary after these 18 months of canceled services and live stream and doing things remote and having to jump through new hoops and worshiping masks and one thing after another. And in the backdrop of all that has been these divisive issues in our churches. Uh, I know some of you may be very weary. And this is your first time out, hopefully to get some fresh air at a conference like this after what this last year and a half has been. And my prayer this morning in these few minutes is that the Good Shepherd would restore your soul. It's in Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Or... Psalm 51, that he would restore the joy in your work, in your labor. Whatever it is that's brought you to this conference, that labor, that interest, that work, that God might be pleased to restore the joy or give you some fresh vision and inspiration and joy for the work, weary as you may be. So let me pray for us here, and then we'll look at 1 Peter 5. So Father in heaven, suffering and fiery trials and insults and conflict and division. Your Apostle Peter was no stranger to them. That's chapter four. (laughs) That's the context in which he then turns to address leaders in the church. And so Father, I pray that in these few minutes this morning, you would be pleased to restore our souls and restore our joy in the labor to which you have called us to be workers in joy for the joy of the people in our congregation. So would you give us grace now in your word in these moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to look at 1 Peter 5. (laughs) Might be unusual for a conference. We're taking a passage of scripture, and I want to give it to you straight. And it is First and foremost, about the formal leaders in the church's lead or teaching office called variously pastors, elders, overseers. And so for those who are pastors formerly in a local church, it's directly to and about you. And others who lead in different ways, whatever degree and various nature of, those, of that leadership, there's relevance here too, especially the heart of it. We're going to get to three contrasts at the heart of this passage. And it's relevant for every Christian, and particularly those who help in worship leadership. So let me read for you 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5. I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, 
but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We live in an age that has become painfully cynical about leadership. And some of it's for good reason, right? Much of it is simply the mood of our times. And the underlying mood has seemed to me to grow thicker and more manifest in recent years and perhaps especially in the last 18 months. Stories of use and abuse abound and the letdowns in leadership make for big headlines. And in the information age, we have more and quicker access than ever before to the tales of bad leaders. Whether that's through a podcast on Christianity Today, or that's through official stories with editors on, and publishers, or people just leaking their own thoughts onto the internet. It is all over. Tales of bad leaders are all over. And in our own lives, probably most or all of us have experienced the sting at some time of being let down by a leader that we trusted. So the pain and confusion are real. And the wounds can be deep. And we learn to guard ourselves from future disappointment. And cynicism can seem like a worthy shield. But the high-profile failures mask the true source of our discontent with being led. We love self. And we long for self-rule. Couple that with our generation's distorted sense of what leadership is. When leadership has become a symbol of status or achievement, or privilege, as it has in many people's eyes. We desire to be the leader ourselves, not so that we can bless others, but so that we can bless, be blessed, and get our own way. And understandably, we become reluctant to give that authority to anybody else in our lives. But into such confusion about leadership as we have in our day, the Christian faith speaks a very different message. You need leadership. It is for your good. You were designed to be led, first and foremost, by God Himself. And through the God-man Jesus Christ, who now wields all authority in heaven and on earth at the Father's right hand. God made you, God made me, God made all of us to be led. He designed our minds, our hearts, our bodies not to thrive in autonomy, but to flourish under the wisdom and provision and care of worthy leaders, and most of all, under Christ Himself. But there's more. The risen Christ has appointed human leaders in submission to Him, 
in local congregations. Precious as the priesthood of all believers is, and it is precious. It's a remarkable truth that was countercultural from the first century into the Reformation. But today, we have a fresh need to articulate the nature and goodness of leadership in the local church and an important kind of gracious inequality within the equality of Christ and believers. One of the ways that Jesus governed his church and blesses her is by giving her, under him, the gift of leaders. It's a gift. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And the mention here of shepherds and teachers is of special significance to all of us as Christians. Because that includes our pastors in the local congregation. And pastors here is plural. More on that in just a minute. You've never met one of Jesus' apostles in the flesh, wonderful and precious as their writings are to us. But chances are, you know a pastor. Or some of you are pastors yourselves. And faithful pastors are a gift from Christ to guide and keep His church today. And just, just a quick word to those in the room who are pastors. No matter, what, uh, no matter what contrasting messages you are hearing, you are a gift to your church. No matter what other instinct, what other, what other messages you are hearing in your congregation, on the internet, in mass media, Christ gave the pastor teachers to the church. You are a gift as you remain faithful to your church. Are pastors flawed? Of course. Are they sinful? Regrettably. Have some pastors made terrible mistakes, sinned grievous, grievously, fleeced their flocks, and harmed the very ones they were commissioned to protect? Sadly, yes. Too many have. But such failures were not in fulfillment of the vision of what true Christian leadership is, but it was a falling short of that vision or a departing from it altogether. In fact, such failures show, by contrast, what real leadership should be. So that's our focus here this morning, what Christ calls leaders in His church to be. And again, 1 Peter chapter 5, 1-5 is explicitly, Peter says, as a fellow elder, writing to elders writing to formal pastors in the church, but there are principles here that relate to you, whatever your task of service is in the local church. And those three terms, pastor, elder, overseer, as we'll see here in just a minute, it's three different names for the same office in the church, which we often call pastor. And so my prayer is that this would be helpful here this morning for, for pastors, congregants, worship leaders, Soloists, instrumentalists, sound people alike. I mentioned a minute ago that, that pastors is plural. Elders is plural. 
in this text. And one of the most important truths to rehearse about pastoral ministry is that Jesus means for it to be teamwork, not a one-man show. As in 1 Peter 5, so in every other context in the New Testament that mentions local church pastor elders, the title is always plural. There's never a single instance of a, of a solo pastor or elder in the New Testament, save one. Christ reigns alone as Lord of the church. He is head of the church, and He alone. Ephesians 1.22, Colossians 1.18. The glory of singular leadership is His. And he means for his under-shepherds to labor and to thrive, not alone, but as a team. Mature congregations, as you know, don't want an untouchable leader perched high atop the church in his pulpit, safely removed from accountability, and the rough and tumble exchanges of preferences and convictions that make for real wisdom in leaders. The kind of pastors we long for in this age are good men with good friends. Friends who love them enough to challenge their instincts and tell them when they think they're mistaken and hold them to the fire of accountability and make life both harder and better, both more uncomfortable and more fruitful. That's what teamwork does. Making decisions on your own is easy. It's comfortable. Making decisions with a team is harder and it's far more fruitful. So let's start with the main verb in this passage. Now we're into the passage in particular. And the main verb in verse 2, this is Peter's charge to the elders, shepherd the flock of God. This is it's not shepherd as a noun here. This is shepherd as a verb. It's an action. Shepherd. And this is a very rich image. We should resist overly simplistic, singular explanations of what shepherd is and means. Consider all that shepherds do. Shepherds feed the flock. Shepherds herd. They tend. They protect. They guide. They lead to pasture. They govern. They care for. They nurture. The shepherd is an image of what we might call benign rule. Which means that the good of the shepherd is bound up with the good of the sheep. The good shepherd doesn't gain while the sheep lose. The good shepherd gains as the sheep gain. He's happy as they're happy. He's joyful as they're joyful. Now the idea of shepherding as you may know, has a rich Old Testament background. To the patriarchs, Jacob, who was a shepherd, and to Israel as shepherds in Egypt and in the wilderness, but also King David, the shepherd boy who became the nation's greatest king. And he, David is referred to as the anointed one who anticipated the great anointed one who was to come after him. And so with David... The shepherding image in the Bible takes on messianic meaning. David, of course, had his own failures in shepherding the nation. But after David, 
it became worse and worse for the nation of Israel. And five centuries later, the prophet Ezekiel, it's a very important text, Ezekiel chapter 34, the prophet Ezekiel condemned the nation's leaders for feeding themselves rather than feeding the sheep. So let me read to you Ezekiel 34, verses 2 to 4. He says, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So the leaders of Israel, as the shepherds of Israel, should have fed the people, not fed on them. They should have strengthened the people, healed them, bound them, brought them back, sought them. But instead, they have ruled them, he says, with force and harshness. That is not benign rule. That is malignant rule. And so the people long for a shepherd, a king, who will rule them with persuasion and kindness, with patience and grace, even as he protects them from their enemies. And God says in response to these selfish, unfaithful shepherds in Israel, he says on the one hand, I will rescue my flock. Again, and again, he says, I will do it. I will come. I will seek them. I will heal them. I will strengthen them. I will rescue my flock. And then he says, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. And he shall feed them and be their shepherd. So God says, I myself will do it. I will come and shepherd my people. And then he says, I'll send my servant David to do it. And by David there, this is, this is five centuries after David died. He doesn't mean the first David. He means the capital A anointed, the Messiah who will come in David's line, who will be the one shepherd over his people to feed them and care for them. And as you know, the prophet Micah prophesied that from Bethlehem, the city of David, will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Micah 5.2. And during his life, Jesus himself says that he is the good shepherd, John 10, who rather than taking from his sheep, he comes to give life to his sheep. He comes to give his own life for his sheep. And then amazingly, at the end of the Gospel of John, this arresting passage where Jesus says to Peter, the same Peter who's writing the text we're looking at this morning, 1 Peter 5, he asks Peter three times, Simon, do you love me? And Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And three times Jesus says, feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. 
In other words, Peter, I'm the good shepherd. And now I'm setting you up under me to be a shepherd for the people. And so feeding and pastoring here are almost synonymous. Jesus, the good shepherd, is leaving. But now he will pastor his sheep through Peter and through other under-shepherds. Not just apostles, but local church pastor leaders. And so the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, verse 28 says, to the elders in Ephesus. Now watch this. He's talking to elders in Ephesus, Acts 20 says. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And that verb translated care for in that context is just the verb for shepherd. Shepherd the church of God, pastor the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So the elders are to oversee and are to pastor. The pastors and elders and overseers, three titles for the same office as we see in 1 Peter 5. So also Acts 20, 28. Finally, in the book of Revelation, we have two images of Jesus as the shepherd in Revelation, in the book of Revelation. The first one in chapter 7, striking, we're told that the lamb will shepherd. The lamb will shepherd. He will guide his people to springs of living water. Revelation 7, 17. This is what shepherds do. They guide their sheep to springs of living water. They feed the sheep. They water the sheep. And then three times in the book of Revelation, Jesus is spoken of as the shepherd who rules with a rod of iron. A rod of iron. Which doesn't mean that he is forceful and harsh with his people. It means that he protects his people from their enemies with his rod of iron. We thought about in Psalm 23 when the psalmist says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The Lord is my shepherd. His rod and his staff comforts me. Does that mean he, the shepherd uses his rod to massage the sheep? Scratch the sheep's back with the rod? You know what the rod's for? Breaking the skull of wolves. And the shepherd looks up, enjoying green pastures, the side still waters, and he sees the rod of the shepherd and he feels safe. He feels comforted because the shepherd is for him. The shepherd will protect him. The shepherd's not going to treat the sheep with harshness and with force. He's not going to use the rod on the sheep's skull, but on the serpent's skull, on the wolf's skull. He'll protect the sheep. So there is a, a richness in this biblical image of shepherding. Let's put it all together here. Centrally, shepherding includes feeding and watering the sheep. Green pastures, still waters in Psalm 23. But also protecting the rod and staff. So there is caring for 
the sheep, leading the sheep with gentleness, with kindness, with persuasion and patience, but wielding a rod of iron to protect the sheep from various threats. Now back to 1 Peter 5. The verb in 1 Peter 5 that augments shepherding here is exercising oversight. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. It's the verb form of the noun overseer that we saw in Acts 20, 28, two other New Testament texts uh, about overseers as a name for pastors. Oversee, in this context, it doesn't just mean to watch from a tower far away. The overseers, they're over the flock and they watch out and they see. It does include that. Overseers need to see. You can't do your work if you don't see. You've got to watch. But also with overseeing, there's this sense of seeing to it. That once you have observed something, that you take initiative, you take action to address it. Overseers that just watch the wolves come in aren't helpful overseers. See the wolves and address the problem with gracious initiative, with moving toward the flock, with dealing gently with the flock. So just a few weeks ago, my fellow pastor at our church, we were going through First Peter here this spring. And he, was on, he preached his First Peter uh, chapter 5 sermon. And here's what he said about overseeing, which I thought was helpful. He says that overseers, the pastors, having seen clearly what they need to see about the flock, the pastors need to have the courage and compassion to act together, there's a team aspect, with wisdom to do what is best for the sheep, especially through teaching. Which honors the centrality of feeding and watering in the shepherding image. So now, at the heart of the passage, we have the three not buts, which Peter designed for pastor elders, but they are relevant for everyone in this room as you think through your calling, your role related to your local church. There are three not one thing, but this one thing in verses two to three. Let me read them for you, and then we're going to go through them in reverse order as we finish. Verses 2 and 3, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, first, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Number two, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And then third, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. All right, in reverse order, first one, not domineering but exemplifying. We saw God's condemnation in Ezekiel 34 for the leaders who ruled with force and harshness. Peter says, not domineering, not that. Which is the same language that we see elsewhere in the New Testament. Maybe you've heard the phrase, not lording it over. Not lording it over. That's the same language here. It's a strong verb that can refer to Jesus' lordship in Romans 14 and 1 Timothy 6, or the kind of lordship that sin once had over us and should not have over us anymore because we're in Christ. It is a kind of lordship that Christian leaders do not have 
over those in their charge. Jesus is Lord in the church. Pastors influence as teachers. They do not control as sergeants or lords. And even for an apostle, if anyone other Christ, anyone other than Christ could claim something like lordship, it would be an apostle. But even the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 24 says to the Corinthians, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. That's why I titled the session, Workers for Your Joy. Because of Paul's explicit words in 2 Corinthians 1, 24, and Peter's vision of leadership here in 1 Peter 5. And as we'll see in a minute, because Hebrews 13, verse 17, is something very similar to say about what the calling of Christian leaders is. To be glad workers for the gladness of their people. This verb here, not domineering, not lording it over, one text I've got to mention is one of the most important texts on leadership in the New Testament. <laughs> if you're in a seminar on leadership for long, or a class on leadership, or a book on leadership that doesn't soon mention the end of Mark 10, something may have gone wrong. And this is the end of Mark 10. This is Mark 10, 42. One of the five most important texts on leadership in the New Testament. The others would be 1 Peter 5, 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, 1 Timothy 3, the elder qualifications, and then maybe Titus 1, 5-9. But this is Mark 10, 42. This is the words of Jesus. Those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be be among you. Jesus says to the apostles, how much more to the rank and file local church pastors and worship leaders, whoever you have in your charge, whoever you're in leadership over, we don't lord it over. It shall not be among you. Christian leaders, as workers for the joy of their people, should not be controlling or domineering or lording it over. Rather, Peter says, they are to be examples for the flock. I hope this feels freeing to some of you. Twice, Peter says that the leaders are those who are among the people. Verse 1, I exhort the elders among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Not above. Not off to the side. Not far away. Not remote. Among. Leaders among the people. People among the leaders in the local church. Good pastors know that they are first and foremost sheep. They know it. They embrace it. They delight in it. 
pastors do not comprise a fundamentally different category of Christian. They need not be world class in their intellect, their oratory, their executive skills, and your performance skills. They are average, normal, healthy Christians serving as examples for the flock while among the flock. And they lead and feed God's people through His Word, accompanied by wise collective guidance in the team. The heart of a good pastor and the heart of a Christian leader or instrumentalist or worship leader or choir member swells at Jesus' words in Luke 10, 20. If you take away one thing, maybe it would be Luke 10, 20. Jesus says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Do not rejoice in this, that your ministry is fruitful, that Sunday morning is a good show, that attendance is growing. Do not rejoice in this, that things seem fruitful, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The first and most fundamental joy for Christian leaders, worship leaders, is not what God does through them. It's what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. Oh, hear this. COVID-weary pastors, COVID-weary singers, choir members, instrumentalists. So good pastors, therefore, good leaders, are secure in soul. They are not blown left and right by the need to impress, the need to prove themselves, which is all the more acute if one of your main roles is on the platform on Sunday morning. They are happy to be seen as normal Christians, not a cut above the congregation, but reliable models of mature, healthy, normal Christianity. Another way to say it is that such pastors, such leaders, such people are humble or humbled. Maybe that's one thing that COVID has done or is doing, or should have done for us. Peter says, all of you should humble themselves. Elders and congregants, leaders and church members, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, verse 5. Healthy churches are eager to clothe themselves with humility toward their pastors who have led the way in dressing with humility for the church. Such pastors, humble in practice, not just in theory, are present in the life of their church. They are accessible to people in their church. They invite, they welcome, they receive feedback from the flock. They don't pretend to shepherd God's flock in all the world through the internet but they focus on the flock that is among you, verse 2. 
the particular names, particular faces that are assigned to you in your local church, in your charge. And they delight to be among the people, not distant or removed. So the first pair, not domineering, but being examples for the flock. The second pair then, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Shameful gain would be some kind of gain other than the gain of the flock. Might be money as a driving motivation. Not that no compensation should happen. If you're a worship leader, that's your full-time vocation, it's appropriate to be compensated for your work. But is that the driving motivation? If that's the driving motivation in Christian ministry, that is shameful. It's not the driving motivation in Christian ministry. It could be power being on the platform. The respect for playing your instrument, singing. The comfort, the enjoyment of performance. Ask yourself, what is your driving motivation in Christian ministry? The driving motivation should be the gain of the flock, the good of the flock, the joy of the flock, its service of others. It's not selfish, not shameful gain. In terms of eagerness then, I said we're going to come to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 gives us this glimpse of the dynamic of Christian leadership as workers for the joy of the flock. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. All right, so let me put that back together here. This is a beautiful marriage-like picture of a complementary relationship between the church and its leaders. The leaders, for their part, they labor. They work hard. It's costly work. And it's for the advantage, for the joy, for the profit, for the gain of the church. And the church, for its part, wants its leaders not only to work hard, but happily, without groaning. Because the pastor's joy in leading will go to the benefit of the flock. It's that word advantage in Hebrews 13, 17. The people want their leaders to labor with joy because they know that their leaders are working for their joy. Christ gives leaders to his people for their gain, which turns the world's perspective on leadership upside down. Not that we lord it over your faith, Paul says, but we work with you for your joy. And if this is the vision of leadership in the local church, if the leaders are living this out, if all the platform people are living this out and working for the joy of the people. Do you know how that would change how the church hears submit to your elders? Which is coming in verse 5. Before Peter ever says, be subject to the elders, before he says that, he says, shepherd the flock of God. Not domineering, not under compulsion, not for shameful gain. Do it willingly, eagerly, be examples to the flock. If that's the vision of Christian leadership, that changes the command to be subject to the elders. 
Those are the kind of leaders, those are the kind of pastors people want to be subject to. They want to be led, cared for, provided, fed, watered, protected by such leaders. A quick side note is, whenever the command to submit or be subject happens in the New Testament, look for what is being asked of those to whom we submit. Husbands, love, be kind, not harsh. Fathers, do not provoke. Civil governors, God's servant for your good, avenging wrong. Pastors, feed the flock through public teaching. Pay attention, keep watch over the flock. Pastors give more of themselves, more of their time, more of their energy, more of their attention to work for the joy of the flock. And therefore, Hebrews says, Peter says, submit to your leaders. They will give an account before Christ. They are under Him. And positively, it will be to your advantage, to your benefit, to your joy, if you let them labor with joy, for your joy, not groaning. Finally then, number three, not under compulsion, but willingly. This is where we end. Churches want happy leaders. They know this deep down. They don't want dutiful clergy. They don't want groaning ministers. And perhaps all the more when they're on the platform on Sundays. The kind of pastors we all want are the ones who want to do the work. They labor with joy for our joy. We want pastors who serve not under compulsion, but willingly from the heart. And here's the amazing thing about this first not but pair. This is why I saved it for last. Peter says, as God would have you. Literally, it's according to God. Which I think means not only as God Himself would have you do it, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God Himself would have you do it. But it means more like as God Himself is, as God Himself does, this is how God shepherds, cares for, loves His people, not under compulsion, but willingly from the heart. God created our world from the heart with joy. He is the infinitely happy, blessed God, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.11, who acts from joy. He wants pastors to labor from joy because God Himself is this way. This is such good news for us as Christians that we have a happy Father. He acts from fullness of joy. He is a God who is most glorified not by our raw duty, but by our eagerness and our enjoyment as He Himself cares for His people willingly, earnestly, with joy. When the pastor comes to the hospital bed of a dying saint and He comes through the door, 
and and he can see on her face, she's surprised with joy that she was remembered. Such a busy pastor. He's got so much to do. He's got his own kids. He's got meetings. He's got elder meetings. He's got a sermon to prepare. He remembered me. He came to visit me. And she says to him, Pastor, why did you come? We all know that at that moment, the answer that honors her is not, it's my duty. It's what pastors do. Heard you're in the hospital. Thought I'd come by quick. Check the box. I the pastor's supposed to be here. The answer that honors her is for him to say, there's no place I'd rather be right now. I can work on the sermon later. There'll be other time with the kids. You are loved by this church. You are loved by me and the pastor. You are loved by your God. And it's my joy to be here and see you, offer a word of encouragement, and pray for you in the hospital bed. Churches know this deep down, that happy pastors, not groaning pastors, make for happy churches and for a glorified Savior. And so pastors and leaders who enjoy the work and work with joy are a benefit, are an advantage to their people for their good and for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. So Father in heaven, we are all aware of how unhappy we can be at times. We know that we are not happy workers for the happiness of our people like we ought. And yet, we want to be that. We want to be this vision of Christian leadership, and we know that we're not on our own. You have given us your spirit, and your son has died to cover our failures and to empower us to live more in light of this vision, to be more like him. Father, we praise you, God yourself, as the infinitely happy one who acts from the heart. And we want to be leaders, want to be servants, want to be ministers, want to be pastors like that who act not according to compulsion, not under compulsion, but willingly from the heart. Make us workers for the joy of our people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.